You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. So please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, I'll ask you a question before we read this and just indicate by using your fingers. How many marks did we say we're going to look at related to what a gospel-shaped life looks like? Anyone remember how many? So we've got some five. <laughs> Correct. Five is right. So, so this morning we're looking at the third mark. Uh, so look with me at 1 Timothy 4. And follow along as I read verses 1 through 16. The Spirit clearly says that in the latter time, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through uh, hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith, and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't, look, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which is given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So we know that there's five marks that we're looking at that would help us understand what does a gospel shaped look like? How is it defined? And so, so far we've talked about, you'll have a growing desire to magnify Christ. We said that you'll have a growing awareness of sin and a spirit of repentance. And the third mark we want to consider based on this passage is you will have a growing appetite for the word of God. You will have a growing appetite for the Word of God. Now, it is true that 1 Timothy, along with 2 Timothy and Titus, are called pastoral epistles. 
So they're written to, to pastors, to leaders of churches. But we shouldn't think the message is just for the pastor. That they are certainly to, as we'll see, model that message and live that out. But it is to be projected and copied by the people and also lived out in their gospel-shaped lives. And so in order to look at what does a growing appetite for the Word of God look like, we're going to consider from the words here in 1 Timothy 4, false teaching, sound teaching, and transformative teaching. So false teaching, sound teaching, and transformative teaching. So let's begin by just considering the first four words in verse 1. The Spirit clearly says. So Paul writes to Timothy and reminds him of what's sometimes been called the Ephesian heresy, that there's false teaching, uh, that Timothy has to be not just equipped to deal with, but bold enough to take on and deal with in the congregation in Ephesus. And it's just a reminder to us that these first four words, the Spirit clearly says, would indicate that this heresy is no surprise to God. Uh, that when we talk about false teaching, uh, it may be new to us, some new exposure or something, but none of this is a surprise to God, nor is it outside of his ordained and perfect plan. That in other words, to highlight what sound teaching looks like, we're presented first with what is an example of false teaching. So if you were to read through 1 Timothy, um, he never quite identifies exactly what this heresy is. It, it seems to have a Jewish component to it. Uh, it also has maybe a Gnostic component to it, where there's a clear teaching about certain material things are just wrong because they're material, uh, whereas certain spiritual things are just pleasing because they're spiritual. Uh, there's also sort of Hellenistic or Greek elements involved in this. So it's not as important for us to know exactly what was this heresy called, but to know that it existed. And it reminds us of something that Paul said to the elders in Ephesus before he would leave them to head to Jerusalem and eventually find himself in Rome. Uh, so if you'd like to, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, you have... Uh, a very touching and tearful departure from Paul with the elders at Ephesus. They meet up with him as he's en route on his trip. And you get to Acts chapter 20 and verses 29 and 30. And this sort of sets the context. Is, is this what, what Paul was referring to when later he's telling Timothy, Here, here's this group. Um, that, that I warned you about. So notice in Acts 20, verse 29 and 30, we read, Paul says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to drag away disciples after them. And so you go back now to 1 Timothy 4, and consider how Paul begins here and says, this false teaching is no surprise. 
It is a part of God's plan to show what is sound teaching. Uh, and so you should be well prepared to encounter it. And I think to show you just how relevant the scriptures are, think of the, the term that's being thrown around now of someone who deconstructs their faith. Uh, there's been a number of very outspoken, you could say, uh, people in evangelical circles who have recanted their faith now, uh, saying they no longer believe the same things. Uh, two in particular that some of you may be familiar with are uh, two young men called Rhett and Link. Uh, Rhett and Link are kind of phenomenals on YouTube, uh, really popular between them. They probably have about a net worth of like $23 million. But they each came out a couple months ago and deconstructed their Christianity. In other words, if, if you listen to them talk, it is very disturbing because they know exactly what Christianity teaches, uh, especially Rhett. Rhett is a young guy who grew up in the church, uh, was active in campus ministries, was a leader in campus ministries. He can probably, if you listen to him, he can explain the gospel better than some Christians. He, he is spot on when he describes what Christianity teaches. But then he says, I just no longer believe it. And he has some reasons that he cites. But, but there would be an example of someone who they know what they're talking about. But yet they've walked away. And the question is always, only God knows the heart. Was it ever genuine? Is this a momentary lapse and rejection? But the reality is we have false teachers and false teaching all around us today. And it shouldn't surprise us because the Spirit has clearly said in this time between Christ's ascension and his return, we can expect to see the prevalence of that growth. And as Paul warned the leaders in Ephesus, some of this will happen right under your own noses within the very church itself, which makes it even so much more dangerous and difficult to find. And so you notice what he says there in 1 Timothy 4.1, some will abandon the faith. Uh, they will depart from it. Uh, they will commit apostasy. They will rebel against the truth. Uh, they will desert it. And so in looking at false teaching, we're reminded that it's no surprise to God. But secondly, in this passage, we're reminded of the source of where this kind of teaching ultimately comes from. And so you notice in verse, the latter half of verse 1 and verse 2, Paul gives us two sources and says, Timothy, keep this in mind. The first source is they follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. In other words, the source of false teaching is supernatural, but it's not from God. And, and I think sometimes there's a confusion. Something can be supernatural, but it does not mean it's from God. It's not the truth. Which would explain how can someone like Rhett and Link, how can someone rise up in a church and say things that are pulling us away from Scripture, if not by the fact that they themselves are deceived and even think this is the truth? or is a better explanation of the truth. And so Paul says, realize that behind this, 
is a demonic power and deception, which right away would say to us, the only way to break out of false teaching is by hearing the truth and God working in that person's heart and mind, bringing conviction of sin. But then Paul also alerts to Timothy and you and me to the fact that although that is the ultimate root of false teaching, it comes to us through human instruments. Because notice what he goes on to say there, the hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So it comes to us through human forms and instruments. And you can't just judge a person by how they look, because many of the false teachers in even church history have come out of religious backgrounds, have come out of and explained an attempt of their teaching is to clarify things that they do not want to deceive, uh, but in reality, they're not preaching and teaching the truth. Uh, the phrasing that's used here is interesting. Uh, to speak of a hypocrite is something we can all relate to from what we were sharing earlier. It means one who wears a mask. I notice today in our society, we're more and more familiar with people wearing masks right now. But it's the thought of one who does not show themselves for who they really are. And so these teachers may appear righteous. They may appear to be advocates of the truth. Uh, they may even cite and refer to scripture. So even in this atmosphere that Paul's dealing with in Ephesus, uh, they are pulling from the Old Testament. The Jewish element is appealing to what the law teaches, uh, but sadly distorting it. And, and so we see the source of this teaching is broken down for us. Uh, the fact that their consciences are seared. Uh, when you think of seared, uh, a medical thought aspect to it would be to, to cauterize something, uh, to stop bleeding, which means you're making something insensitive. So in that case, you could say, well, maybe Paul is saying to Timothy, their, their hearts, their receptivity to the word of God has been hardened because of willful sin, because of willful rejection. You can also possibly look at the word seared, meaning branded. And, and some have speculated maybe the branding part is emphasizing ownership. In other words, they, they no longer really belong to God. The way they're teaching reveals who they truly belong to. And so we were just singing a chorus as the fact that in Christ, God is a good, good father. He is who we are. Paul is maybe saying to Timothy here, the fact that their conscience are seared reveals who they are and who they belong to, rather than just looking at their appearances. And so in, in weighing this false teaching, we've looked at the source of it. We've looked a little bit at the, the nature of it, uh, that it's not a surprise. And then you notice in verse 3 a, a quick summary of this false teaching. Now, it included more than this, but Paul keys in on two things they're teaching. Uh, they're forbidding marriage, and they're also dealing with restricting certain foods. So in a sense, a form of asceticism, like where you're, you're determining holiness based on abstinence from certain 
physical rights, our activities. Uh, and many New Testament scholars speculate here, maybe some of what they were teaching was what we need to do is go back to a pre-fallen state, like go back to before marriage was instituted, go back to uh, in the garden before animals became a piece and source of our diet. Like, like try to go back to that. Uh, and here would be the ways you can, can do that. Um, and so we have a teaching that is not biblical. And so how relevant it is for us to not just read this and say, well, that was needed in the first century, but for each of us to say, this is exactly the world we live in. Uh, Paul, Paul is reading our mail. He, he knows what our world is like. Uh, and it will continue to increasingly become this way. So that lays the groundwork now for maybe us to step back and say, well, if that's what false teaching is, what, what does sound teaching look like? Um, and, and the word sound is used two times in 1 Timothy, in chapter 1 and in chapter 6. Uh, it, it's the root for our English word hygiene. So basically, to be sound means to be healthy. Uh, I've noticed today there's another term that's often used a lot. Something needs to be robust. And robust means the same thing. Uh, something that is strong, uh, vigorous. So what does vigorous or sound teaching look like? Well, look at verses four and five. Sound teaching should characterize a good minister of Christ. Sound teaching should characterize a good minister of Christ. You notice verses four and five, Paul gives a response to the second of the aspects they are guilty of teaching incorrectly on. And that is he addresses the food issue. Uh, and the way he addresses it is through looking at it from a biblical perspective. In other words, if we think of sound teaching, sound teaching would mean that we look at circumstances, we look at events through a biblical grid. And that's how we determine what our response should be. And, and to remind us how practical this is, uh, if we're thinking of Leslie looking at potentially a new job, you know, how, how does she, how should we look at that through a biblical grid? Well, we don't just look and say, well, which one pays more? Uh, which one would have you work less hours but make more money? Uh, you know, which one had the bigger office so you'd look more prestigious? If we're looking at it through a biblical grid, we're saying, well, which one would God desire me to use my gifts in? Which one has he made me a better fit for? Uh, which one is a position that, even though I'm not sure how, God might be able to use me more effectively for him. Those are things that as a Christian who has an appetite for God's word, we should be immediately screening things like that in our world. And just as with the pandemic, that we should be screening that also through a biblical grid, knowing that sickness is not always the result of God's judgment, but it can be at times that we also look at this as an opportunity for people to, to reevaluate their lives, to, to soften their hearts to, to us being able in some way 
to present the gospel to them, uh, to the fact that many churches who are meeting virtually are finding uh, that if they're live streaming services, they're getting more people live streaming than they've gotten who attend their church. That should help us kind of filter that and say, well, how can we be praying now that those people would not remain just virtually interested, but would see their need to hear that word personally and for God to work through that. So it's interesting that Paul says to Timothy, this is what a good minister looks like. In a sense, you could say this is what sound teaching is. We, we filter things through a biblical grid. And the more we do that, the more second nature, spirit nature, it should come to all of us. You notice in verse 6, though, that sound teaching delights God. In verse 6, it says, if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. What, what an encouragement to Timothy, because we do know that Timothy, somehow in his personality at times, may be a little hesitant to confront uh, in, a, in a stronger way. Maybe you could say Paul's the opposite. Uh, and so Paul needs to, in these letters, often encourage Timothy do this, but he reminds him, do this, and you are a good minister. You're, you are a good servant of Jesus Christ when you bring these things to your people's attention, when you bring the word of God to that situation. Uh, and that word minister, as I just referenced, is the word for deacon. You, you are a good servant. So would it be true that this wouldn't just hold true for Timothy, that that means he's a good servant if he does this, but if we're all servants of Christ, that this also says to us, if we delight in God's word and we seek to see life from a biblical perspective, that that also delights our Heavenly Father? That not only can we praise him as being a good, good father, but we can hear him, in a sense, echo back to us, you're a good, good servant. You're a good minister of Christ Jesus. And he adds something to this in verse 6 when he says, you have been brought up in the truths of the faith. And you think of what said earlier in the letter about Eunice and Lois, how they have raised you, how they have directed you and brought you to a place where you acknowledge Christ on your own. But, but now Paul references not just his past background brought you up, but the word is present tense. So in other words, you are continuing to delight in God. You are continuing as a servant of God to be committed to sound teaching. And so when we talk about a gospel-shaped life, we're, we're echoing here, this is a continuing process in each of our lives in Christ. It is what is developing as a result of the Spirit's work in us, sanctification. But then he also adds to that, not only how you were brought up, present tense, continuing in that vein, but he says, uh, end of the good teaching that you have followed. Now, the word followed is in a different tense. That word takes us all the way back to, you could argue, Timothy's early exposure to the gospel and the truth of God through his mother and grandmother, all the way up to his existing results 
even now in his life. What, what a picture of, of sound teaching that reminds us all exposure to the scriptures is intended for this goal. To equip us to be able to point out, discern, pick up, not just on false teaching, but what is the right teaching that we are to cling to. But as you think of sound teaching, also remember that sound teaching is the result of a lifetime in the scriptures. Uh, we love shortcuts. I don't know if you've seen commercials that talk about, you know, lose weight without exercising, without changing your diet. Uh, just take this. Why is that appealing? Because, because we don't want to work for things. We, we want the results, but we don't like the discipline, the effort, the, the commitment that's involved there. And I think we're reminded here there are no shortcuts to sound teaching. That, that it, it is something you can't just receive in one shot, one week, one sermon series. Uh, it, it's a reflection of a lifetime. Occasionally at school, uh, we'll get onto some subject with students and I'll, well, they wouldn't say it this way, but I'll say it. I kind of launch into a mini sermon. And, and then when I'm done, some of them will say, how did you just do that? How did you just know those verses and things like that? And, and I'll say, well, one, it's by God's grace, but you got to realize I, I've spent like a lifetime studying. And, th and that's a, a privilege for me. Uh, I was thinking even this just this week, uh, you know, what a blessing it is that you are able to, to pay me to devote myself to studying the scriptures to teach you. Like that, that's just a blessing. That's like a dream job for me. Now, it may not be for you, but, but I look at that and say, what, what, a, what a blessing. But it's a lifetime pursuit. And it should be for each of us a lifetime pursuit in, in wanting to understand the word of God. Uh, notice how Paul presents this in verses 7 through 11. If sound teaching is a result of a lifetime immersed in scripture. Verse 7 says, if you, in a sense, are committed to that, you have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. In other words, you will have wisdom to discern truth from error. And although he's told us in verses 1 through 4, this teaching is very deceptive, even though I warned the elders about this, he says that from a biblical grid, this teaching, this false teaching, is, is godless myths. It, it's silly stories. It's something that will not hold the weight and stand for eternity. It may be appealing now. It will appeal to itching ears. Uh, but it is, it is fluff. It is meaningless. It is empty. But then he goes on in verse 8 to counter that with training yourself at the end of verse 7, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Now the word train at the end of verse 7 should immediately say to us, this is, this is difficult. Uh, I am certain that for each of us, there are days that you find it very hard to read your Bible. Uh, you're distracted, you have a lot to do, you're tired, 
Uh, we're not saying a lifetime pursuit of the scriptures is easy. We are definitely saying, like Paul, tremendously rewarding and, and, an, and an obligation and responsibility that you have in Christ Jesus. But it is training. The word training there comes from our word gym, gymnasium, a place where athletic exercising and competition and strengthening takes place. So he says, train yourselves to be godly. And then in verse 8, he mentions godliness. Uh, we don't use that term much today. We don't speak about a person's godliness. Uh, I think sometimes wrongly because we think it reeks of pride, arrogance. But we need to understand the word godly or godliness means reflecting the characteristics of God. Uh, the Puritans had a great word for this. They spoke of piety. And, and by piety, what they, they actually meant was Christ's work in you and Christ's work outside of you. And, and I just love that thought of that's what godliness is. You're talking about Christ's work in you through the Holy Spirit, increasing your desire, your appetite for the word, uh, giving you greater discipline to, to stick to a reading of the word of God. Uh, but then it's also Christ's work outside of you. How can that happen? Because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, because of who Jesus Christ is, because of his resurrection power. And so this isn't merely a thing of saying, well, to get the word of God into you, you need to make up a rigid schedule. You need to be checking boxes off and going through that. But you do need to ask the Lord for greater discipline. Strengthen your commitment. Uh, share with someone else in church where you want to be reading. Ask them to check up on you. Although we speak of the fact that the Bible is clear, that it has a clarity, that its message can be understood with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, we also know certain books are more difficult to understand. But we need to work through that. We need to read the Word of God, all the Word of God, not just the letters of the New Testament, which are kind of smooth flowing, maybe immediately relevant and practical. But we need to read books like Lamentations. We need to study books like Leviticus. We need to know what the whole Word of God has to say. And that takes a lifetime. Martin Luther, in talking about the, the value of Scripture, not only said that his goal every year was to at least read through the Bible three times a year, but also that people should converse continually about the Psalms and the Scriptures. In other words, it's so in us, it is a part of us. So in looking at sound teaching, we see that it's not going to be easy, uh, but rewarding. In fact, it has value, not just for this life, for victoriously living the Christian life, but for what awaits us in eternity. Uh, but then go down to verses 9 and 10. Not only is this a trustworthy saying, like one you can put your full confidence in, but then he says, for this we labor and strive. Uh, the word labor, to, to effort to the point of exhaustion. Now, this does not mean that you should feel wiped out after reading your Bible. 
but it does mean that there'll be days when you read your Bible and maybe you don't feel like you want to read it. It's hard. Maybe there's days you read it and you're, you're just not sure what you actually read. But trust in the fact that as you put God's word into you, uh, that it will reap the rewards and the fruit that God intends. And so be faithful, be diligent, be a lifetime learner, not just in your profession, but, but in your personal relationship with God. Now, you might think, well, all right, so that's sound teaching. But there's another subtle danger with that, in that you can have sound teaching, but maybe it doesn't really impact or change your life. So, for example, in James 2, James writes that even Satan knows and believes that there's one God. In other words, he affirms that. He, he has a knowledge of that, but it obviously doesn't change him. Then in Revelation 2, you have a warning to the church in Ephesus many years later that one of their strengths is that they test false teaching. So in other words, they, they have sound doctrine, but they've lost their first love for Christ. In other words, what that's saying to us is sound doctrine is important, but you need to move beyond just sound doctrine to transformative teaching. In other words, teaching that changes our lives. Teaching that is rooted in the word of God results in a changed and changing life. And in particular, this is the focus of verses 11 through 16. So an imperative is a command, a responsibility that you now have. In verses 11 through 16, there's 10 imperatives. In other words, it's filled with, this is how the word of God, this is how sound teaching should impact your life and mine, both for Timothy as a pastor, but then also Timothy for the people that are going to be not just hearing this, but hopefully receiving what you're saying. And so notice that God's word must be digested, not just heard. So there's no doubt when we're, we're done with this Zoom worship, all of you have heard God's word. Unless you've played around with your audio and turned off the sound, you, you have heard God's word. The bigger question is, have you digested it? Have, have you taken it in? And what will happen to what you have heard? in the coming week and months. And so you see this in verses 11 and 12. Uh, he says, Timothy, command and teach these things. There's a direct instruction for Timothy. If you're going to be a good minister, a good servant of Christ, you, you've got to teach the word. And we all know to teach anything, you have to have some knowledge of it to begin with. But then he goes on and says that you need, in verse 12, to set an example for the believers. Uh, and he mentions five key areas. In other words, Timothy, if, if you're going to preach sound teaching, then it needs to be backed up by the fact that it's clear you have digested it yourself. 
And the way that he says your hearers will know you've digested it is they will look at your speech, they will look at your life, they will look at your love, your relationships with others, they will look at your faith, and they will look at your purity or your integrity and holiness in life. If we just took those five areas and said to ourselves honestly before God, does my life reflect the scriptures in each of these areas in increasing amounts? That would be a worthy exercise and application of scripture. So it's not just hearing God's word. That, that's a first step, and that's great. But we need to take that word in. We, we need to reread it. We need to be getting it in and praying for God's Holy Spirit to show us how that word can work its way out in these areas of our life. And so even as you look at those five areas, basically what that's saying is, Timothy, in your personal life and in your public life, the word of God should be evident that you know it and you live by it. It should be so clear in each of those areas. Now, granted, Timothy would not have said, I'm doing that perfectly. Paul would not have said, I'm doing that perfectly in my life. But he would say, that should be the goal of every Christian, by God's grace, to have that transparency, that transformative aspect of teaching, that it, it changes us, not just at conversion, but every day it is changing us in how we see our world, and how we deal with others. Then in verse 13, he says, until I come, devote yourself to public, public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Another strong word to devote yourself, apply yourself to this, to keep this before you. Now, these would be unique to the ministry of the church as they corporately would meet together in homes. But, but think of this fact of just the importance of, of reading God's word, uh, publicly reading it. That's why we looked at the passage with Josiah. He had the word of God read before the people, not just because they didn't have copies themselves or because some of them would have been illiterate, but, but the hearing of God's word is one step closer to the digesting of God's word. Which is why even in a corporate worship, we read God's word out loud. I could easily say to each of you, read this passage to yourself, and then we just jump into it, but to the public reading of God's word. And then he mentions preaching. And, and the word preaching here is, is interesting in that it, it points to tenderly not just announcing something but it's the word from which we get the term for the holy spirit one who comes alongside of us so in a sense he's first emphasizing take the word of god and apply it to the hurts and struggles of those in the household of god comfort them with the word of god strengthen them with the word of god encourage them with the word of god the second term that he uses is teaching. Now, teaching has already been rendered differently in the letter. It's the word doctrine. Give them doctrine. Give them the truths of teaching and doctrines and instructions that God's word sets forth. 
So doctrine isn't just for theologians, professionals. It's not just for pastors. Doctrine is for all of us. We, we need to know how to think biblically in order to see the world through a biblical grid or lens. And then you notice verses 14 and following, God's word should transform you and me from the inside out. Then when you talk about a gospel-shaped life, you're talking about something that takes place spiritually within you that is a work of God. In that sense, it's invisible. But it should be made visible as it is worked out and displayed in our lives because that's transformative teaching. If it just stops at sound teaching, then we have a lot of information and it may be correct, but we haven't applied it. No one would know that, that it's actually changing our lives. And so you see in verses 14 and 15, where he encourages Timothy uh, to use the gifts that you have been given. Now for Timothy, there's a unique role that he has as a pastor uh, to shepherd the flock. But all of us, as we've started to learn in the adult class, have been given spiritual gifts. Uh, that is one way that we show that we have been changed from the inside and it's manifesting itself outwardly by our service, our activity, our ministry to one another. And you see in that passage, how he says, give yourself wholly to this. Uh, again, effort, but it's effort that is a result of God working in you. Uh, like how one translation puts it, instead of saying, give yourself holy, it says, be absorbed in this. Think about it. Pray about it. Act on it. And then you see as well, he says that others may, what? See your progress. Now, it's one thing for us to kind of say, if someone were to point blank ask you and say, are you growing spiritually? You could say yes. And is that it? We just take someone's word for it? Well, we don't know what's going on in Joe's heart. But Paul is saying to Timothy, you know what? People need to know you don't just say this is happening. It is evident in your life. People can see your progress. I got thinking about, and although there's a different composition here, uh, it was 29 years ago today, on the second Sunday of May, that I began my ministry here. And, and I was thinking, if, if any of you saw pictures of Heather and I then, or kids, or I saw pictures of you 29 years ago, it would be obvious some things have changed as we look at those pictures. Shouldn't it be just as obvious from week to week, month to month, that we can see the progress in one another, that we are seeing we're growing spiritually. Not, not just because we know certain things, which is important, but because it's taking root in our lives. If, if Paul is saying to Timothy, who Timothy, he has great praise for, he says, in other places, I have no one like this man. He has such love for God, such love for you. But if he can say to Timothy, make sure your people can see you progressing spiritually. 
then we can assume that's a message Timothy needs to tell his people. Make sure you can see one another growing spiritually. The people can see your advancement, maybe in terms of your involvement in, in church, in ministry. Maybe the way in which you, you pray has, has shown change, growth, development. Maybe the way you see circumstances in your life reveals that you no longer just look at things on surface levels, but you look at it from a biblical perspective. That's, that's progress. And that should mark a gospel-shaped life. That it is characterized by we're hearing the word of God. We're hearing sound doctrine, but it's also having a transforming effect and work in our life. And the impact of that is phenomenal because you get to verse 16, and he says, watch your life and doctrine closely. That's not just for pastors. Obviously, it is a, a clear responsibility of pastors, and we've seen far too many who have failed to do both in the history of the church. But he's also saying to, the, to every believer, you, you need to watch your life and your doctrine closely. Why your life? Because that is where the visibility of your faith and a true faith comes in. But then he goes on and says, by doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Here's the impact. Not just saying you believe the Bible is important or saying you believe it's God's word. But, but how do you live that out? Because that is what impacts and confirms to others we mean what we're saying. David was able to say in Psalm 119, I love your law. Now, I don't doubt we, each of us could say that. I, I guess the question I think of immediately is, but would others believe that? Because it's easy to say we love the scriptures. It's easy to say, I, I know the Bible is God's word. But I think far too often we are complacent to come up with excuses why we don't know the scriptures. Uh, to evidence in our, our lack of talking about where we're reading in the Word of God, uh, where it's being applied in our life. The fact that that's not sometimes a part of our conversations says to us, there's a disconnect there. It's not transforming us like it should. And the issue isn't with God's Word. The issue is with our own hearts. As so I say that to you, as Paul was saying to Timothy, teach your people this. this. This will make you a minister, a servant who is fit for the work that God has called you to. So maybe to, to kind of leave all of us with two questions to honestly think about. Uh, one would be simply, can you name an attitude or action in your life recently that has been changed because of the scriptures? Can, can you name or identify an attitude or action recently in your life that has been changed because of the scriptures? Where, where you've been reading God's word and, and because of something you read, you were convicted and you know what? 
I, I need to give this attitude over, or here's a situation that, that I, I need to say, this needs to be dealt with before God. And, and I'm striving in Christ to do that. Now that, that's assuming, which we should probably not make this assumption in any church, that people are even reading God's word throughout the week. Because if you go by religious polling among churches, the average person, so average means there's people way above this, people way below it. The average person is maybe reading the scriptures two to four minutes a day. So we have a much bigger problem there if we're not even reading God's word as those who are professing it is important to us. So that first question, can, can you honestly say that here, here's an area, here's a situation that, that I, I've dealt with differently because of I've read this in God's word? And the second question would be, do you ever find yourself asking, what does the Bible have to say about this? Do you ever find yourself maybe in the midst of a situation, watching something on the news, just finding yourself asking, what does the Bible say about this? If that isn't on your radar screen, that shows you're, you're not keeping the Bible front and center. You're reacting to things. You're uh, looking at them based on surfacey, circumstantial impact. You're not saying to yourself, wait a minute, how, am I, how I respond to this should be controlled and influenced by the word of God. And so we see that a gospel-shaped life is all about a growing appetite for God's word. Plead with God to give you that. Don't expect that immediately you'll you know, have such an appetite, you'll sit down and read the whole Bible in one sitting. Uh, remember, be committed to this. Devote yourself wholly to this. Say, God, I'm taking you at your word. You have said this will give life both for the present and the future. Uh, so I trust we'll, we'll all take this and not just say we've heard God's word, not just say that was sound teaching, that was from the Bible, but that looking back on this week, we'll be able to say that reminds me that God's word is transformative. Let me, let me pray with you. Most righteous God, we stand undone before your word. It is always true. It is living. It is active. It cuts where it needs to cut. And it heals and mends where it needs to heal and restore. Forgive us for often coming to your word only because we want to be encouraged only because we want comfort, not the comforter. Only because we want immediate direction rather than lifetime godliness and holiness. So Lord, I plead with you that for each of us, you would give us a greater hunger for your word, that we would take steps to read it consistently to think upon it, that your spirit would bring it to our attention. Then we look at circumstances in our life as we pray for others, we would always do so through the grid of scripture. How would God want me to pray about this?
how would you desire to use this in my life and life of our community and life and plan of the big picture of God's redemptive story? And so, Lord, we are very conscious of the fact that this is a work that you must do in us. But may we respond in obedience. May we respond knowing that it is God who is at work in us and through us. And so this is not an area that is delegated just for pastors to do, but it applies to every single one of us who professes your name, who claims that we love your law, but we contradict that when we rarely read it, when we don't read it with the intent of studying it and understanding it so that we can apply it. And so may we live gospel-shaped lives, magnifying Christ our Savior, sensitive and convicted of sin, and yet turning from it by your grace. And Lord, may we become a people who live out your word daily. Lord, we know that there are many needs among us. We ask that your spirit would direct us to pray correctly for them. As we think of Leslie, we pray for your leading in this uh, potential new position, uh, that if this is where you would desire to have her serve you, uh, that if it puts her in touch with different workers that you would desire to use her testimony for, uh, that you would make that very clear. Uh, that if it's a position that might in some ways test her faith in you and develop even greater patience and perseverance in her, uh, that that would be the position you would have for her. Uh, if you can do that work in the position she presently has, may you continue to give her the strength to do that there. Lord, as we pray for those, as we prayed for Caitlin and, and Jordan, and Joanne and others who uh, are out in the world and dealing with different issues in, in their work lives as well as personal lives. We pray for your continued protection over Caitlin and Joanne. Uh, but we know, Lord, because of the state of their hearts, we pray for each of them very differently uh, because we're praying through the grid of scripture. Uh, Lord, we pray for Caitlin's salvation, uh, for this just awareness of just how Quickly, life can be brought to an end in the uncertainty uh, of our circumstances um, that you would bring into our life other Christian nurses, caregivers. Um, Lord, confront her with the truthfulness of your word uh, through lives that are in every way embodying that truth uh, in speech, in life, in purity, and in action. Uh, Lord, guard us against many times appearing as hypocrites, uh, or what we say is not really how we live, uh, that this is not just a danger that false teachers fall prey to, uh, but even without a constant dependence and abiding in you, uh, that we also uh, are guilty of wearing a mask, uh, of settling for, at times, an appearance of holiness, without a true life of holiness. Lord, we do pray for our communities and our nation as phases to reopening are beginning. Uh, we pray that you would 
give our legislators and president and others wisdom in this matter, uh, as no one knows the future but you. Uh, but we pray that you would continue to use this physical virus as a reminder to all of us of keeping short accounts with you, of confessing our sins and looking to you for forgiveness. Lord, we pray for those who do not know you, uh, that this would be a means of breaking their pride, uh, breaking them of other sources of security that they look to, that they have cling to. Uh, we pray that it would present an opportunity uh, to show what it means to speak of the church as the family of God at a time when so many are being reminded of the importance of family. Uh, we pray that we would not forget uh, that it's not our families that are to be worshiped uh, and served ultimately, but it is you. Uh, and so we ask for a true uh, spiritual awakening as the hand of God is over all things uh, that are going on in our world. Lord, most of all, we entrust ourselves once again to you, realizing that we are weak, but you are omnipotent, uh, that we are limited in knowledge, but you are omniscient, uh, that Lord, although we can only be in one place at one time, your presence is continually with us in Christ Jesus. And so we rest in your love, we rest in the fact of knowing that you are gracious and compassionate and merciful, uh, that you are a good, good father, that that is who you are, and that is then therefore who we are in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.